So great to see you today, and uh, you guys are excited today, I can tell already from that time of worship. So are you guys excited about Melchizedek? Is that what it is? I am excited about Melchizedek. That's where we're going to be today in our study. Again, as Phil prayed and mentioned, please continue to lift up the uh, team in Honduras this week. Uh, I've been on many mission trips uh, in many different parts of the world, and one thing has been consistent, and that is whenever the Church of Jesus Christ uh, steps out in faith outside of themselves to be a blessing to those in need and to bring the hope of Christ to those uh, who are desperately in need of his touch and his truth, um, they, get, they go under attack, spiritual attack. There's warfare that takes place, uh, sickness, persecution, uh, even the enemy attempting to create internal division among the teams that go. And so you really need to keep them in prayer. You really need to lift them up that the Lord would protect them and use them and cause them to be fruitful there in Honduras as they go. Another very important announcement that I want to make to you guys, we are excited as a church, as a leadership team to, to inform you, to let you know that after uh, a lot of prayer and discussion with many candidates and fasting and seeking the Lord, uh, God has led us to uh, bring on a youth pastor here at Grace, and so we are super excited to invite uh, Jonathan and his wife Mel and their little daughter Ray. I think we have a picture of them here. Uh, they're going to be joining us. Uh, they'll be here Tuesday or Wednesday of this next week. Uh, it's really great. I'll have him share the story with you how we ended up reconnecting. Jonathan, I went through a pastoral leadership training group that I uh, did at Chino Hills. They are moving from California. I, uh, I hope that's okay with you, but, um, you know, I, rem I remember they are so excited. Um, uh, when, I, when I first came here from California, you know, people said, well, why did you come here from California? And um, because, I, because I think this is, well, first of all, God led us here, and that's, at the end of the day, that's enough. You go where God sends you. But you know what? I think this is a pretty great place, and I think our best days are ahead of us, and, um, and, and uh, I think God's doing a special work in this city and in this church, and, and so we're, we're preparing for the days ahead, and, and Jonathan and, and Mel are really excited to, to come, but we need, they need family. You know, it's hard. I've, I understand how hard it is to leave uh, your family and every, everything that's comfortable to you, and they're just going to need your love and support. So uh, we'll introduce them to you, uh, Lord willing, next, next week, and uh, you guys can just show them your love. But we're excited about what, what God has for the youth ahead of us, and it's going to be a great, great time. Um, also, just keep in mind that we have a baptism on March 13th. seems like people keep receiving the Lord and wanting to get baptized, and whether we baptize one or 100, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to keep celebrating that. So if you are in the place where you need to be baptized, you've received Christ, but you haven't taken, taken that step of obedience to identify with him, we want you to sign up to be baptized on March 13th. Uh, March 13th, and you can sign up online for that. Okay, enough of the announcements. Let's get to the meat of the word. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and open to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Hebrews. If you would stand with me, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. And here... 
Paul picks up where he left off in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he introduces this a character named Melchizedek to us. And then he says, uh, but I got to spend here a chapter talking about the fact that you are not yet willing or ready to receive necessarily the meat of God's word. And here's why. Your hearts have become dull of hearing. Uh, many of you are being tempted to move away from Christ into other things. And that's dangerous. You don't want to slip off the path of trusting fully in Jesus. And when he after now, he goes through that little aside, that necessary rabbit trail. He comes back now to the meat of the word. Speaking of Melchizedek and ultimately Jesus' heavenly ministry. I love how Warren Wearsby put it. He put it like this. He said, the emphasis in Hebrews is not necessarily what Christ did on earth, what we might say the milk of the word, but what he is doing in heaven, the meat of the word. And now he moves into his heavenly priestly ministry through this character named Melchizedek. I'll read the odd-numbered verses if you would join together on the even-numbered verses. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who made, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here... Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Amen? You can be seated. A number of uh, years back, when we lived in Northern California, we had the joy and the, uh, the privilege, God created this really neat opportunity for us, uh, for our family, to build a house. Now, I don't know if any of you have actually gone through the process of buying a piece of land and getting the drawings worked out and hiring a contractor and getting all the subcontractors and going through this whole process of building a house. It was interesting, to say the least. You know, thanks to a very gifted um, and godly contractor, he made the process very uh, very easy, and, and yet you would, with all the normal things you would expect, all the roadblocks and unexpected challenges that come in building a house, um, but I remember that our contractor, you know, he was, he was old school. He drew all his plans by hand on, on the big sheets of paper, and right when we 
uh, were in the middle of, of designing the house, he switched over to doing everything digitally on, on this uh, computer program. And he was learning how to do it. And I remember when he sent me the first email of, of the house. And I was just blown away. I was looking at this 3D model of, of, you know, you look at the land and you see nothing. And then you see this model and you see all the landscaping. And you see this house built and all the finishes, exactly how to look. You, took a, you can take a tour inside of it and you can see exactly how the kitchen is laid out and all the furniture that's possible and all the paint colors. And, and I was just blown away looking at this thinking, man, that, that, that's an incredible picture of something that's to come. And then you start building it, and you learn something very quickly. It, it, uh, it doesn't always look like the picture when it's being built. <laughs> and it starts to take form, and you start to see things come together. And you're looking at the picture, and you're looking at the real thing, and then eventually the house is built, and you have that, you have that tangible, real place that you always envisioned and you saw in a picture, but now it's real and there's a dynamic about it that's so much better than what you looked at. Now, how silly would it have, would it have been if I looked at the house, the completed house, and I said, no, that's all right. I, I think I'll just hang on to the drawings. I think I'll just hang on to the pictures. Now, I know it's kind of a silly analogy, but the Old Covenant which included the Ten Commandments, the legal ordinances from God to his people, the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, later the temple. All of these things, God was providing a blueprint, a drawing, a picture of something that was to come and in all these things, his calling of Abraham is setting apart of the nation of Israel to be his people, to shine his light, the setting up the sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins, the ministry of the high priest into the temple, which was only a picture. And Hebrews is, is defining everything about that blueprint, those drawings, that picture, that it was all pointing to the reality that God would one day build the house and the house would be Jesus, and the church, and the sacrifice on the cross, and the ministry of Jesus in heaven, in the heavenly temple, not built with hands. That all of these things were pictures of the reality which was to come, who is Christ. But Israel, over the years, had fallen so in love with the pictures that they completely missed the tangible expression of everything God was pointing to. On top of that, there were obvious parts of the blueprints that they were missing. For example, the Jews in the time of Jesus rightfully had the picture of the Messiah being a king, coming and delivering his people from their enemies, as the Bible says he would. But they missed the image that the prophets painted of Jesus, of their Messiah, being the suffering servant who would save his people by brutally dying upon a cross and carrying their sin upon his shoulders and being slain and rejected by men and becoming the chief cornerstone. They didn't see the full picture. In fact, you could almost say that they drew their own uh, drawings on the picture and made their own version of what God was trying 
to show them and, and, and accomplishing. Another aspect of the picture that they missed within God's drawings was the priestly aspect of the Messiah's ministry. That the Messiah would be a priest forever, a forever priest to make intercession between God and man. That the picture of the Levitical priesthood and the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and the blood being shed was just a picture pointing to a forever priest. One who would not have a beginning or an end or die or whose ministry could ever be replaced. But it would be continual always before the very presence of God for us. But the questions would need to be answered. Who would this priest be? Would he be of the line of Aaron? I had someone point this out to me uh, this week. If you're reading the one-year Bible, you just read about the, the, uh, the, the line of Aaron being ordained to the priesthood and, um, as you're doing the one-year Bible. Well, who would this ultimate priest be? Would he be of the tribe of Aaron, Levi? After all, the Messiah must be a king of the tribe of Judah. But on top of that, the priests from the line of Aaron were confined to the ministry of the temple. They were bound by the covenant of the law. Was there another line of priests that this forever priest would come from? Of course there is. And actually, God wove him perfectly into the story. He gave us a small sketch, three verses in Genesis 14, which we'll look at in a moment. A small yet significant blip on the radar of prophetic history. And then later, King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would randomly, almost seemingly randomly, pen a psalm. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, he would write, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. Then, when the time was just right, God built the house. Jesus Christ, the source of eternal forgiveness and righteousness and grace and mercy. And God was so excited for all his people to recognize that everything he's been drawing and pointing to is now walking in their midst. He was hoping that all those who were living under the law would see their insufficiencies and flaws and limitations and see God's eternal plan being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus, not limited by genealogies or sin or death, not, not needing to be replaced, Jesus, who would usher in the new and better covenant, a sacrifice that would last forever. But again, unfortunately, the people had missed it. They'd felt fallen so in love with the temporal law that they had missed God's intentional plan. So God publishes the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 7, he lays out the reasons why Jesus brings a better covenant, a better covenant, an everlasting covenant, as the eternal high priest. So let's dive right in, and let's ask ourselves the question first. Who is this vague and mysterious character we find in the Bible, in Genesis, later in Psalms, and then explained in the book of Hebrews by the Apostle Paul. Well, there are countless theological ideas out there as to who this man is. Some believe that Melchizedek is a heavenly being, like an angel made manifest on the earth. But I think in the context of Hebrews, already, we're already told that Jesus is better than the angels. I don't think that can be the case. 
Some, some say that he was a descendant of Jephthah, the son of Noah, who settled in the area of Salem. Um, that's a nice conjecture, but really there's no evidence of that at all. Others indicate that Methu- uh, Methuselah, <laughs> that's a different guy altogether. I'm going to get lots of M's mixed up here. Melchizedek uh, was none other than a Christophany or a pre-incarnate Old Testament appearance or expression of Jesus Christ himself, which is, we, we see in several other places as well, which is where, personally, where I lean, this is where I lean to believe that this is what that is. Um, but another possibility is that uh, Melchizedek was actually an unknown man whom God had chosen to be a type or a symbol or a picture of the kind of ministry that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, eternally has. At the end of the day, I really believe that the identity, specific identity of Melchizedek matters less than what Melchizedek represents divinely inspired prophetically by God in the, in, in the story. But I do believe that this is most likely because of the, the specific language used in Hebrews, an, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Not incarnate, but not that he was a man, but he appeared as a man. And God did that several times in the Old Testament, by the way even when he spoke to Abraham. And so as we look, we see four characteristics of Melchizedek that point us to the ministry of Jesus. If you're taking notes, jot the first down, is that the author tells us of the heavenly title, the heavenly title given to Melchizedek. Verses 1 and 2 we read, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all. That's a tithe. First mention of the tithe in the Bible. First being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Here the author recalls a three-verse segment in Genesis chapter 14, and it's packed with... 20 sermons worth of material. But uh, you can turn there if you want, Genesis 14, but I'll read it to you. Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Abraham had just rescued his nephew, Lot, from captivity. Uh, He was taken captive by an alliance of kings that fought against Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram hears about his nephew Lot being captured, and so he takes 318 of his trained military servants, and he goes and he just lays waste to, these, to this, this alliance of kings, and he rescues Lot, and he collects all the spoils of the battle. Upon returning from the battle, Abram is met by this strange and obscure figure, a man named Melchizedek, as he's returning with all of this spoil from this battle. And in Genesis 14, starting at verse 18, we read, Then Melchizedek, his name uh, translated king of righteousness, the king of Salem, and of course Salem is the ancient Jerusalem, the city of peace, Salem, before the nation of Israel even existed in that location, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that's Abraham, gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. That's it. A whole section in the book of Hebrews is based on these three verses and one verse in Psalms. But look at how amazing this is. This blows my mind. Let's look at the characteristics of Mel. You guys mind if I just call him Mel from here on out? Number one, jot it down, point it out, that Mel is a, both a king and a priest in one person. Now we have to understand that in the legal system of the Old Covenant, the priestly line, Levi, and the kingly line, Judah, were separated intentionally by God. Because of the sinfulness and the, and the selfish ambition of man, you, God would not allow a man to be both king and priest at the same time. Because a selfish, sinful man, having the ability to abuse both his political and his spiritual authority at the same time, could create a lot of problems, uh, a lot of accountability. You might call it the first separation of church and state. Which, by the way, um, in our country, the separation of church and state is to protect the true church from the oppression of the state. You know that, right? Uh, it's not to limit the church's influence within the state. But we should be grateful that political power and spiritual authority aren't mixed because historically, when people have used spiritual power as a platform for political ambitions, it's led to both a misrepresentation of, of Jesus and an abuse of power uh, and authority. Now, this doesn't mean we don't want Christians to be leading in places of authority. Of course we do. That's not the point. But we don't want people in authority using religious jargon and religious things to abuse that power and to manipulate people of faith. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm really digressing now. But notice that he was both king and priest. That the interesting and unique thing about Melchizedek, that, that in one person, he had the ability to both be the king of Salem, peace, and the king of righteousness. And the priest, were called, he's called of the Most High God. The word there, Most High God, God Most High, El Elyon. God Elion is a place of authority. It means to be above the rest. So he's speaking that, that he's a priest of the God who is above all the other little g gods, all the idols, all the demonic realms, all the forces, whatever it might be, that there is a God who is above it all. And this was the priest of the Most High God. So that's the first thing to notice. Unique characteristic of Mel is that he was a king and a priest in one person. Secondly, he is the perfect blend of righteousness and peace. Notice that. By the nature and meaning of his name, Melchizedek, he holds the title, as his name means, king of righteousness. In other words, whatever it was about this man, he loved righteousness above all else. He was righteous in all of his dealings. He was righteous in his judgments. And at the same time, 
He was the king of Salem, and the word Salem is translated peace. So you could say that he was the king of righteousness, he was the prince of peace. He was a perfect balance of grace and truth. In fact, prophesying of the coming Messiah in Psalm 85, David would say this, Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Where? Well, in the person of the Messiah. So, third thing, if this isn't becoming convincing enough about the uniqueness of this man, of this figure. The third characteristic we find in these verses is that his blessing, Melchizedek's blessing to Abraham, is sealed with a gift of bread and wine. Isn't that incredible? This is amazing. The king of righteousness, the prince of peace, who is the king and the priest of the Most High God, approaches Abraham, a representation, we're told later, of all who would come to God by faith, with the token of bread and wine. Let me ask you a few questions. What other figure in the Bible is both the ultimate king and ultimate priest? Jesus. Who has come as the perfect expression of God's peace and grace and righteousness and truth? Did not John say we beheld him? full of grace and truth, Jesus. Who comes to the children of Abraham with bread and wine, sealing the blessings of his covenant? This bread is my body, broken for you. This cup, this wine, is my blood of the new covenant, spilled for you. Jesus. You guys, I want you to think about this. I know it's sometimes hard when we just hear this kind of stuff, especially when you've been in church for a long time. But you can't make this up. 2,000 years. 2,000 years before Jesus shows up, in three verses, God gives us the whole gospel. A picture of Christ who would come through this image of Melchizedek. Jesus fully represents and fulfills the righteousness of God and represents the one who is able to make peace between sinners and God, and it gets even better. Not only does he have this title, king of peace and king of righteousness, he comes with bread and with wine to seal his covenant. He is both king and priest unto God. But number two, look at the heavenly genealogy that is described. Verse 3 tells us, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. In verse 3, the author points out the lack of information that's recorded about Melchizedek. Oh, wouldn't we have loved if there was some sort of family tree, some sort of explanation about who he was, where he came from. No, God left those details out on purpose to give us a picture of the Son of God. 
None of his genealogy is recorded. His birth and death records non-existent. Why does this matter? Well, according to the Jewish legal system, one could not serve as a priest in the, under the law within the tabernacle or the temple without proving their genealogy goes back to the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. We find this actually in both Ezra and Nehemiah. Jews were, are meticulous about their genealogies. Remember when Paul told Timothy on a side note, he says, don't argue over genealogies. You know why he said that? Because that was a big thing. The line you came from really, really, really mattered. Because it defined your, your place within the social scale and your place within the legal ministry and the priesthood. I love how one commentator puts this. He explains it like this. He says, This implies that Melchizedek's priesthood was not established upon external circumstances of birth and descent. It was based on the call of God and not the hereditary process by which the Levitical priesthood was sustained. In this way, Mel could be an adequate representation of Jesus the high priest of the new covenant who was not from the tribe of Levi or of the line of Aaron. And notice he says he has no beginning or end of days or life. Not only does this speak of the eternal nature of Christ, who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who is eternal in the heavens without beginning and without end, but it speaks to the fact that the ministry of this priestly line goes on without end. The Levitical priest could serve between the ages of 25 and 50, and then they had to be replaced. If they died, they had to be replaced. And yet Melchizedek, his ministry was not bound by age or limitations or genealogies. It had no beginning and no end. And this is how Jesus is presented to us in Scripture. Revelation 1.18 he has conquered the grave and he's alive forevermore, we're told. He told the Jews in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Always have been, always will be. And then verse 3 tells us that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Whoever Melchizedek was, either in a person representing Christ or Jesus himself, one thing is clear. When he says he was made like the Son of God, we learn that Jesus didn't come to represent the ministry of Melchizedek. It's the other way around. Melchizedek existed to represent the ministry of Jesus, the eternal ministry of Jesus. So we see here, no beginning, no end, no genealogy, all playing into the fact that the author in Hebrews is now making the case, Jesus is better than the line of Aaron. Because this would have been a huge deal for the Jewish audience. Okay, Jesus is a Messiah, and I've said this two weeks in a row now, but Jesus is a Messiah. But how can he be the priest? He's not qualified. This matters to the Jew. Where do they come from? He says, oh, he comes from a far better line, a line that's not limited by age restrictions and legal restrictions and, and death. He comes from the eternal line of priesthood that God established before the law existed in Abraham. 
So there's a heavenly title. There's a heavenly genealogy. Now notice, he speaks of this tithe. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a message on tithing today. We'll pass the plate a little, a few times, no. But this tithe represents the third point, which is there is a heavenly priority given to Melchizedek, a heavenly priority given to Melchizedek. Verses 4 through 10, this is where it gets a little confusing, but let's break it down. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. And indeed, those who are of, of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises. What is all this saying? Here, he's laying the context of the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham, which equals the superiority of Jesus to the religion of Judaism. Notice in verse 7, he, he kind of brings us all to a point where he says, Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Between two people, the one who is giving the blessing is always greater than the one who is giving the tithe, right? When someone gives a tithe, a percentage of what they have to someone else, they are honoring them. They are worshiping them. They are saying, what's mine belongs to you because you are what? You're greater than I am. And Abraham would have given a blessing, right, to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob. And why? That represents the one who gives, who lays the hand on and gives the blessing is the greater. And so the picture he's painting here is Melchizedek gave the blessing. Abraham gave the tithe. So that means that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then he goes and he breaks it down even further. He says, now the Levites, they receive the tithe from Israel. So the people of Israel would give their tithes to the Levites in, their, in honoring the Levitical priesthood and ultimately their worship to God. But the Levites, who were, de the Levites were descendants of who? Abraham. Ultimately, all of Israel was descendants of Abraham. And if Abraham gave his tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek gave the blessing, which means he is in the highest place of authority... That makes Mel more important than Abraham, the Levites, and all of Israel, and even the law itself. If you're confused yet, let me confuse you more. I'll break it down like this with this chart. So, look at it with me. Here's what he's trying to communicate. The Levites, let's say the Levites equal the law, the old covenant legal system, okay? The Levites are greater than Israel, Abraham is greater than the Levites. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then if we say Melchizedek equals Jesus, that means Jesus is greater than Israel, the Levites, and Abraham. If Jesus equals grace, then the ultimate conclusion is that grace is greater than the law. Okay? Some spiritual math for you there. That's, how he's, that's what he's trying to communicate to us. Is that... And we'll break it down into this, into this fourth point, the heavenly tithe. What does this represent as 
Moses is or excuse me, Abraham is establishing Melchizedek as the one who deserves honor from him. Well, in verse 8, we're told, here, that is on earth, mortal men receive tithes, but there, that is in eternity, he receives them, Jesus, who is portrayed in Melchizedek, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. In other words, to receive a tithe, you must be alive. There's a nice little rhyme for you. To receive a tithe, you must be alive. And so, what the author is painting here is that, I'm sorry, this is, this is, this is really cool. Look at verse 9. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. And he wants, he wants to make it clear to his audience, he's not being literal, he's being figurative, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I love this. says the Levites did receive, do receive the tithe, which makes them, gives them a place of, of authority. But in giving tithes to Levi, who are you actually giving tithes to? Well, in Hebraic thought, you are the, you are the son of your ancestors no matter how far removed, okay? They believed in a concept called racial solidarity, that, that one person can... can uh, uh, can act on behalf of, of a group of people or a line of people. I remember when Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees. In multiple places, in multiple places this happens, but I'll take John's account, for example. There were Jews who, who wanted to believe in Jesus, but they were uh, uh, confused about this language by Jesus, about, being, about God being the Father and and Jesus would ask them, who is your father, right? And, and in John chapter 8, the religious of, of Jesus' time answered, and they said, they said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Now, of course, they were far removed from Abraham. They weren't literally born from Abraham, but Abraham is our father. In other words, Abraham is the line from which we come from. And Jesus said to them, I love Jesus' response, look at, if you were Abraham's children, you would what? Do the works of Abraham. What did Abraham do? He gave, he honored Melchizedek as the greater, as the high priest of the Most High God. He gave his tithes. And he goes on to tell, Jesus goes on to tell him, you know, you aren't children of Abraham, you're actually children of the devil. You, you are acting more like him. Or else you would receive who I am. And here the author says the tithes that were paid to the Levites were actually going through their father because the Levites were actually still in Abraham's loins, still in his line when Abraham met Melchizedek. That means the Levites came from the genealogy of Abraham, which means when Abraham, who was great, gave the tithes to Melchizedek, in a sense, all of Abraham's ancestors were giving the tithes to Melchizedek. It stops with Melchizedek. He is the beginning of the tithe. First time it's mentioned in the Bible. And then Paul blows our minds when he writes to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore know that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So let's break this down. If you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are grafted in to the nation of Israel, to God's seed. We are grafted in, the Bible says. 
And that makes us, by faith, children of who? Well, if you are of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. This is awesome because Paul basically says there is a better priestly order. Not only do you not need the Levitical priesthood anymore, you get a better priesthood in Jesus that lasts forever. And he is deserving of your worship, your honor, and everything that you have. Here he's really making a case that it's about who you know that matters most. Reminds me of the biology final. It was a a tough class, and the final exam was promised to be very difficult, and the professor decided to give his students a break, and he said, whatever you guys can fit on one note, note sheet of paper, whatever information, you can bring it to class for your test. Whatever you can fit on one piece of paper. So one student got clever. He found one of his uncles who was a biology professor. He put the piece of paper next to his desk and had his uncle stand on it and asked him the questions of every question on the test. Just goes to show you, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And here, he's saying there's a better priestly line. Not of a priest that, was, that has the limitations of the law and of genealogy and of age and of death, as we're going to see in the next half of this chapter. But one to whom even our father Abraham bowed the knee and gave of his own wealth and of his own resources, representing the gift of even his own honor and worship to this high priest without beginning or end of days, whose covenant is sealed with bread and wine. He's saying, do you see the, do you see the, the blueprint yet? Do you see how God just sketched that little thing right in there and drew that beautiful picture for you to just understand? He had a plan all along. Now, for you and I, who are, most of us at least, feel somewhat far removed from Jewish tradition and the Levitical and uh, priesthood may seem like an irrelevant topic to us, I would suggest that they're incredibly applicable because this means, this passage here means today that you and I get access to God straight through faith in his son Jesus Christ, that we no longer need a flawed and temporary human priest or religious system to get us to God. And that's incredible. You know, um, so many have dishonored this Melchizedek order. You know, the Mormons, they... They ordain priests in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Freemasons, they have this idea of the Melchizedek order. Uh, even some Roman Catholics. My friends, there is only one priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the Son of God. He, as we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus. And unlike the office of the Levitical priesthood, which had to make continual sacrifices, Jesus made one sacrifice once and for all sin, 
He doesn't have to be crucified over and over again. His blood will never become void or run out of forgiving power. And this, why the, this is why the priesthood of Melchizedek run, matters so much. And God told us about it 4,000 years ago. Okay, Josh, that's really nice. But what on earth does Mel have to do with me? It sounds like a really bad 90s sit, sitcom, right? Mel and me. <laughs> I'll leave you with three brief final thoughts. Number one, what does Mel, Mel have to do with you? Well, number one is Melchizedek teaches me that Jesus is worthy of my honor and worship. That's what Melchizedek teaches me, that if my father Abraham, the one whom God chose, whose descendants, you and I, would outnumber the stars in the heaven, whose descendants would bless the entire earth, if he would bow the knee and give of his own resources to this eternal priest, then Jesus is worthy and deserving not just of my tithe, which he is, but he's deserving of my time and my talents and my energy and my obedience and my sacrifice and my love. Or as Paul would say, would you not even offer your very living bodies as a living sacrifice to him, which is your reasonable act of worship? Number two, Melchizedek has to do with me in that he teaches me that every blessing worth having ultimately comes from God through Jesus Christ. Melchizedek gave Abraham the ultimate blessing Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every promise of God in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. If you want to receive the true blessing of his salvation, of his promises, of his blessings in your life, the only way you can come and receive those is through the blood of Jesus. Through the bread and the wine, the cup and the, 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 the body and the blood that was shed for your sin. And the third and final way that Melchizedek represents and should I say applies to me is it teaches me, and I mentioned it, that Jesus supersedes religion. I think Melchizedek would, would be somewhat of an offense to the Jew who valued their pedigree, who valued the pomp and circumstance of the Levitical priesthood and the temple and all the ceremonies and the rituals Melchizedek was plain. He was without a prestigious ancestral line, yet he was chosen by God. This is why Paul says that, uh, that Jesus is a stumbling block, an offense to the Jews. Who is Jesus? A carpenter from Nazareth? He's going to be our high priest? Yes, but you're missing it because he is of the heavenly line, the greater line of priesthood. Jesus will insult anyone who wants to try to get to God on their own religious efforts, <laughs> who wants to impress God with their moral performance, who thinks that they can do something on this earth that will somehow merit their favor before God. It's not going to happen because Jesus is the one who accomplished it all. And so Melchizedek, a complex uh, interesting and really mind-boggling character whom God used 
to give us a picture of the superiority and the greatness of Jesus and his heavenly ministry for us. Amen? Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. We need it. We need every part of it. Every part of it. That we might become more in awe and more amazed by who you are and what you've done and the story you've written. Even all the pictures you've drawn that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to thank you, Jesus, that you intercede for us on behalf of us before the Father in heaven. That you neither sleep nor slumber, you never cease, Lord. You are always working on our behalf. And we're grateful for your ministry that you represent us even today, dressed in your robes of righteousness, cleansed from our sin. Lord, I pray if there is anyone in here who hasn't experienced the forgiveness of their sin, hasn't placed their faith and their trust wholly and completely in you for their salvation, would even this day, this moment, confess their need for you, Lord Jesus, the greater king, the greater priest, that they would not look to their religion or their performance or anything that they could do to try to make themselves right with you, but that they would turn to you, Lord, and trust in you today. Lord, we honor you. We give you of our, our tithes. We give you of our life. We give you our hearts once again, afresh and anew, Lord, that, because you are worthy and deserving for all that you have done and accomplished for us on our behalf. We love you, Lord. May your love shine through us and abound in us. As we leave this place today, may you comfort every heart and fill us all with your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.